This one is from Abraham Velasquez. He says, Dr. Sigru, I feel it's all too easy to get lost in thought and overthinking when reading too much philosophy. How does one step into the mode of action? Is it simply to walk away from reading and out into the world? Well, no, I have to say it isn't. If you want to step more directly into the mode of action, um, you could flop on the floor like a fish. Those are actions. Um, action is not an end in itself. Action towards what purpose? In other words, uh, just doing things for the sake of doing things, um, well, why not dig holes and fill them in? So unless you have a reason for what you're doing, unless you have a, a goal of self-creation and self-creation with reference to virtues external to you, um, action for, for its own sake um, might cause you to be uh, a saint or uh, a murderer. It doesn't by itself answer the crucial question of moral valence. Now, I understand that Marx says philosophers have changed the world, have interpreted the world. The point is to change it. But mm, I don't think that's true because it's only a partial truth. There's more to the truth than that. So you know how when people are sworn in to give testimony, to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. I think Marx is, say, is telling us the truth in the sense that the, the purpose of theory is action. But um, I don't think it's the whole truth. In other words, action, if it doesn't serve some purpose, like I said, you might as well flop on the floor like a fish. There's some action. So what we want is purposeful teleological action toward the realization of some good that's uh, different from whatever whimsicalities pop into our individual heads. Uh, what we need is some good greater than ourselves that, that isn't imprisoned in our ego and bound by the limits of our fingertips. So my sense is that uh, you have a concern for the least advantaged in society. I think that there's much to be said for that. Compassion is a virtue. Um, but what that means then is that you're not just going to do stuff. You're going to do stuff for a reason. And you're going to appreciate the fact that there are limitations even to the best intended actions. And there are also consequences that are unexpected in even the best intention, intended actions. So the world is a mess, admittedly, and it needs fixing, admittedly. But never lose sight of the fact that we as individuals and the people we work with are also imperfect and also in need of fixing. And what that means is that, well, you have to go back to the initial question. Why am I doing what I'm doing? Or like they say in Latin, quo vadis, where are you going? 
And this one also has two questions. This is from Nikola Dimitrov. He says, can you tell us more about your experience with chess as well as your game with Grandmaster Bent Larson? Oh, okay. Um, there's a photograph of that somewhere. I think I still have it, but, you know, it's in a large pile of papers. I put it away like a pack rat. But uh, I was 17, and I found chess uh, in the in the, the move up to Bobby Fischer's 1972 championship. And I liked it because it allowed me to even the score with the, the priests that taught me. Some of them were very smart, uh, uh, and uh, they were very uh, capable men, particularly capable of uh, talking well. And, of course, they had the advantage of God on their side and theology and stuff that I couldn't possibly deal with it you know, 14 or 15. But when I discovered chess, the nice thing is that logic is the great equalizer, and if God didn't help them soon, um, it was mate in five. And I found now that, you know, I had finally my even playing field, and that's what I like best about chess. Nobody could bring in anything else. It, was, it just was what it was. And uh, I like the fairness of it. Uh, and I like uh, I like the elegance of it too. I like the beauty of chess. It has the beauty of mathematics and uh, and also the beauty of music. You know the really beautiful chess games are whole and perfect in the way beautiful musical compositions are, or even beautiful mathematical proofs. So uh, I happen to uh, play with my club and. Uh, in August of 1974, I was 17, and uh, school hadn't started yet, and they were having a simultaneous exhibition with Grandmaster Larson, who had, uh, you know, been one of the candidates in the last go-round for the uh, World Championship, and uh, he gave half of us white and half of us black, and I was lucky enough to get the white pieces, and. Uh, he took out most of the of the, his opponents pretty quickly and just established winning positions where it was just a technical question of you know when he would force them to resign but he was clear uh i had a different strategy for deal, for trying to approach playing him and uh yeah maybe i can explain uh, i'm not a good tactician i've never been good at doing the calculation that chess requires. In other words, it's not, um, the way I think about chess is not like Mikhail Tal. Uh, the grandmaster whose style I like the most would be Capablanca because he's the ultimate positional player and I'm mostly a positional player. I look for general broad patterns, but actually doing the calculation for combinations, I'm pretty bad at that. Okay. The question is, if you're 17 years old and you're outclassed by, you know, more than a thousand points by a grandmaster like Larson, who at the time is still in the top 10 in the world, um, what do you do? Well, in this case, he was thoughtful enough to give me the white pieces. So what I did was this. Um, that was like having the first shot in a gunfight. And if you know how things work with cowboys, um, Anybody that challenges a fast gun is likely to get himself killed because 
almost nobody could outgun someone who was really quick on the draw. And I knew that Larson, because he was so great, I mean, so overwhelming, um, had to be much quicker on the draw than I did. So instead of starting my uh, uh, game with Larson by trying to outdraw him, I went for a strategy rather than tactics. And here's the strategy. I'm going to make things more and more and more complicated. Because although I'll lose myself in the complications early in this process, if I make things complicated enough, what that means is that he also will be guessing because it'll be too complicated for anybody to find over the board. So, uh, what I wanted to do then was, even at the cost of material, to create the maximum amount of complexity. Let me go back to the analogy of the gunfight between an amateur and a pro, somebody who's really fast on the draw. Instead of shooting at him, if I have the first chance to shoot, I'm going to shoot out the lights. <laughs> and once we shoot out the lights, even though he had a 99 to 1 advantage against me, when they were on, once I shoot out the lights, it's 50-50. So the idea was to help him be as ignorant and, and overwhelmed by the position as I was. <laughs> and I do that by shoveling complications at him. Lots and lots and lots of complications. Sacrifice a pawn, sacrifice a piece, sacrifice my queen, uh, queen that pawn, sacrifice that too. In other words, I was throwing everything but, but the kitchen sink and eventually the kitchen sink at him. There are very few times that you get a chance to do a double queen sacrifice. To sacrifice the one you got to begin with and then on the next move, uh, queen a pawn and make the, your opponent take that one too. In other words, to feed them the way uh, goose get, geese get fed before they lose their liver. <laughs> We're packing material down his throat. And uh, I, I have to admit, I have no idea how that lecture, how that, how that uh, game worked. The tactics, insofar as I understand them, were correct. But uh, what I was doing was taking my best guess while throwing everything in creation at him. And uh, eventually it turned out that even though I sacrificed my queen and then sacrificed the next queen and sacrificed a whole bunch of other stuff, um, his king was way out there in the center of the board along with his queen. And uh, it was uh, a ferocious kill. So I attribute the win not to my tactics, because I have to admit I was guessing. I don't understand how it works. But um, rather to my strategy, I did understand what I was trying to achieve. And the strategy here was to make things so complicated that at night all cows are black. <laughs> so this is the creative use of darkness. And then the second one is, what do you think about the Unabomber's Manifesto? Okay, um, that's the destructive use of darkness. And uh, here's the deal. I'm willing to read most people's writing if, if I have some reason to think it's worth my time. But if the way you're going to get attention to your uh, malevolence 
is by blowing people up at random, um, then I think you're a monster. And I think that for the same reason I don't like Foucault or Heidegger, um, I have, I'm likely to have real problems with your account of the world and your account of human nature. I'm sure you're a brilliant guy, but as I said before, my fear is that you're too deeply Athenian to recognize the wisdom in the parable of the Good Samaritan, which is why you thought it satisfactory to uh, choose propaganda by the deed where people got killed and maimed so that you could call attention to yourself. So look, um, it's just one of those things I'd rather not bother with. Uh, there are plenty others, uh, EMC Oren, uh, Ayn Rand. Uh, there's a whole bunch of things that I find not worth my time, and this is one of them. And Magnus asks, isn't there a conceptual likeness between Plato's forms and universal grammar, and is there perhaps a historical connection between the two? Well, um, the amount of historical separation suggests to me that uh, insofar as there's a connection, it's mediated, and certainly more than once. Uh, certainly Descartes, as a mediating thinker between Plato and Chomsky, uh, suggests himself. Um, Plato was looking for the underlying structures of human consciousness. He wanted to understand how, how arithmetic was possible. In some ways, that's the whole project of Plato's philosophy. All right. Uh, what Chomsky wants to understand is how language is possible. And it seems that there has to be an underlying set of structures which allows any developing human subject to absorb language and to understand the nature of grammatical rules. So he thinks that we're predisposed towards the use of grammar, the expectation of grammar, and the ability to distinguish grammar from just sounds. So, um, yeah, both of them are looking for a way to create unity among what appears to be a vast multiplicity of booming and buzzing things. So Plato's forms are going to, unify, are going to unify, unify all the odds and ends that we see here in this world, and also all the likenesses and imitations at the bottom of the divided line, um, and in one unity, the forms, and then the forms themselves unify in the form of the good, which is essentially the monotheistic God without a personality. It's a big crystal of goodness, just sits there being good and allowing other things to be good, which is a great thing for it to do. But you don't have to have a, a revelation in order to get there. You just have to think deep thoughts for a long time. And so Plato has a very optimistic view of how easy it is to have a chat with the absolute. Um, Chomsky's been uh, criticized as being rationalistic, and it's understandable um, that this seems like an a priori set of constructions. But in fact, uh, 
what he would retort is that there's no other way to comprehend um, the the multiplicity, the welter of different rules and sign systems that we call language. So, yeah, I think that they're connected conceptually more than historically. And Ian Baker asks, which lecture was your favorite to give? Also, which topic of philosophy is your favorite to study? Oh, that's a great question, because I like teaching, and uh, my lectures are just uh, improvisations. It's just thinking out loud. Uh, with the piano left out, it's improvising at the piano. Um, I guess my favorite lecture I gave repeatedly, I guess something for a period of 10 or 12 years, uh, I used to give it every year at Princeton for the Medina Judges Seminar, which is a s seminar for federal appellate court judges every year. And uh, it was on the history of the world, which is a topic that I uh, have always been interested in, and I you know, taught it when I was at Johns Hopkins before I went to Princeton. And uh, I used to cover the whole history of the world in about 90 minutes or so. And, uh, you know, essentially what I did was give them a synopsis of the course I used to teach when I was at Hopkins. And uh, <clears throat> I enjoyed that very much, and I did it for 10 or 12 years consecutively uh, until I left Princeton, even after I left Princeton. So uh, um, I guess that's the the one I enjoyed the most. Uh, I don't have copies of it, but there are probably copies of it in the Princeton University archive because I know that there were some videotape uh, portions of that, or there some videotape uh, examples of that. Um, but of the ones that we have here, I guess my lecture on Machiavelli was the most entertaining one. Uh, I think it's a very poor lecture, and in fact it is a very poor lecture. But it was produced under <laughs> difficult circumstances. We had three professors giving lectures. And we were at the Smithsonian. And this is very early in the history of the teaching company. I'd say this was about nine, 1993. And uh, we were giving lectures on the history of philosophy as we presented it in Columbia University's famous contemporary civilization class. All three of us had taught that before. Now, things were going okay. We had uh, a live audience, we had a couple of different camera crews, and we had the Smithsonian. You know, I think we were in the basement someplace, I don't know where. But uh, the anxiety of performance got to one of the uh, lecturers, and uh, he just had a kind of meltdown, a kind of breakdown. And when we found him, uh, he was rocking back and forth, you know, and, like a traumatized child. And uh, he was unable to give the Machiavelli lecture. So when Tom Rollins went and encountered this, he looked at uh, me and he looked at the other lecturer and I says, look, I have an audience out here, and I need Machiavelli right, in 60 seconds. And so uh, the other lecturer, Darren Staloff, uh, we just looked at each other, and uh, you know, neither of us is prepared to do this, although both of us know Machiavelli, of course. It's one thing to do that, another thing to go out and lecture on it. 
um, before an, a live audience while you're being videotaped. Uh, you know, 45 minutes can seem like a very long time. But I figured, what the hell? Because I had no sense of judgment and no sense of uh, <laughs> what was good for me. I said, yeah, sure, what the hell? I'll take a shot at it. And so Tom and the crew just mic'd me up and I went out on stage and it, most of the uh, lecturers had fairly elaborate notes. I, I was the one who mostly dispensed with notes. But I brought out uh, blank pieces of paper because I wanted people to have some sense <laughs> that I uh, was not making this up as I was going along. It's a kind of elaborate uh, free association about Machiavelli. It lasts about 45 minutes. It has no real coherence or structure. And uh, it was, you know, I got from minute one to minute 45 thinking this on the fly and forming it into grammatical English sentences and then being very, very relieved when the audience clapped at the end instead of throwing stuff. So that was a sort of fun time. You know, you never know when you're going to need to be able to slap together a lecture on God knows what. And uh, finally, I mean, the lectures I enjoyed giving most uh, that are published here, um, I have to say, philosophers that are in very high estimation nowadays, um, that I think are grossly overrated, um, I try and give them what I think they have coming to them. So, uh, yeah, I'm pretty hard on Heidegger. I'm pretty hard on Foucault. I think the vogue of Foucault has been mostly pernicious. I don't think there's anything in uh, either of them that's not implicit in Callicles' last speech in Plato's dialogue, The Gorgias. Both are moral nightmares. And although people mistake them for something new, in fact, they're a very, very old pair of temptations. So I like smacking them around and uh, showing my dis distaste for them. On the other hand, I've grown to like and change my opinion about some things. Uh, Euripides, for example. I often found him a little bit light compared to the other Greek tragedians, and also a little bit, uh, a little bit cute. And so, yeah, I, I sometimes gave him a hard time in my Plato lectures. Now that I'm an older man, I'm a little less <laughs> inclined to give him a hard time. I see the point that he's making about lim human limitations and even the, li the limitations of reason itself. Thinking through the limitations of reason itself is, in fact, an eminently reasonable thing to do, even though you might not have guessed that from the Bacchae. Those are my three favorites. This question comes from Brendan Hutzel. He says, Dr. Sigru, how do you feel about the cultural effects of Foucault and postmodernism in the 2020s? Well, I think POMO is dead, and it's been dead for some time. My guess is that what knocked it off was 9-11. Uh, the fragments that have been kind of uh, sleepwalking through the last couple of decades uh, it's the realm of second and third rate intellects nowadays it's not very interesting 
So uh, postmodernism, uh, it's, uh, it's uh, a theory that's expended, or it's a, it's a stance that has expended its energy. There's not much left to it. Now, with regard to Foucault, um, we've, Foucault described himself as one particular kind of interpretation of Nietzsche. And I have to agree with him. That makes perfectly good sense. And uh, the idea of uh, eliminating prior moral, prior, prior traditions of moral thought <clears throat> and replacing them with some sort of improvisation, um, that was Nietzsche's project. And then it was sort of interesting and entertaining. And it's a kind of a, it, it's also Foucault's project. And maybe a, I think a little more shopworn at that point. But um, the process of liberating political life for, for Foucault is the process of optimizing and lap, maximizing libido. Not the, any particular libido, although his and those of other people immediately in his vicinity were, uh, were valued. Um, He's talking more about a general abstraction, right? Think of it this way. Um, Rousseau, with whom he is, has considerable connection, um, talked about a volonté générale, a, a general will. Now, the general will is not the kind of thing you could find out by doing polls, because it's not the same thing as the accumulated collective will of, a, of the people in a society. Rather, it's what a society should be willing for itself if it were as clever and rational as insi and insightful as Rousseau, which is to say, this is a new retread of Platonism. Let's go back now to uh, Foucault. Foucault departs from the idea of volonté générale, except insofar as it's uh, realized in the destruction of political hierarchies and the realization of what I will call the libido general. Foucault's program is directed towards the, the danger that somewhere, somehow, there may be some libido that's not being realized in the world. Uh, Libido becomes an absolute good, and in many ways, this is not something new, as in so the, so many cases of uh, pseudo uh, immediate ideas. If you go back and look at Aristophanes' speech in the middle of the symposium, he says something like, "Sexual desire in the form of." Uh, Aphrodite is never to be withstood. In other words, it's always to be affirmed and valorized. Uh, this is an idea that gets picked up by D.H. Lawrence, and that's what his novels are about. Well, Foucault is also committed to this in a philosophical sense. Uh, the good thing is the satisfaction of desire, and he wants to maximize that, but not for the entirety of a society. Uh, as a utilitarian would, rather for himself and whatever collection of uh, others that he decides to uh, turn into a project. Could be a political group, could be a sexual group, 
could be an artistic group, but the idea is that uh, there's an aestheticism that's being driven into uh, ethics. And uh, the abolition of that old-fashioned Christian and Kantian universalism at the behest of Nietzsche is going to give us uh, an absolute focus and an absolute pursuit of the libido generale. This is the reason why Foucault turned out to have been a pedophile. He paid boys to have sex, children, uh, while he was in North Africa, and uh, he advocated for the abolition of all prohibitions legally against pedophilia in France. And he and a couple of other important POMO thinkers signed on to that. Now the problem here is not inconsistency. This is perfectly consistent with their general belief that no desire is to be restrained. That's their goal because that's what they think human felicity is. The abolition of restraint on desire. This is a kind of a weird caricature of Freud in a way. Um, So the problem that we have is that Foucault was a moral monster. He uh, took sexual advantage of children. He knowingly had anonymous random sex with men knowing he was HIV positive. That comes from the book The Passion of Michel Foucault. Um, His conduct was monstrous, but given his assumptions about the world and his conception of human happiness and felicity, there's, I mean, there's nothing hypocritical about it. The problem is, is that there are people who like his ideas but don't like where they go. And that's something they're going to have to live with. Second thing is that Foucault is very much like Heidegger. Heidegger has many interesting, if obscure, observations on uh, the contemporary world and some equally obscure and complex discussions of the Greek world. But he was also a Nazi who uh, turned on his previous teachers and uh, delivered the Rectorats Rede. The reason I bring him up is that both Foucault and Heidegger had the temerity to suggest to other people that they understood how human life should be lived. And my point is that if they were right and the lives they lived are what they meant by how human life should be lived, I'm willing to walk away from that right off the top. I'm I'm not interested in talking to everybody. On the other hand, if it's not the way life ought to be lived, then their hypocrisy is so rank that I would wonder why their hypocritical posturing should be Uh, validated, independent of the fact that they didn't believe it in in their own lives and in their own case. There are two kinds of people I really loathe. One is televangelists who can't keep their dick in their pants. And the other are philosophers that don't stand up and live up to the requirements of their own philosophy. Thank you. This next question comes from Grim Reamer. He says, who is right, Hobbes or Locke? Well, I like the question because simple questions 
are the hardest to answer. But a simple question deserves a direct answer. The answer is Hobbes. Uh, it's not that Locke doesn't have much to offer us. He does. And it's in the same way and for many of the same reasons that Montesquieu does. But because I'm an American, uh, I was raised in a largely Lockean tradition of political thought. And uh, most of our institutions are organized around Lockean thinking. But um, Hobbes is a realist. And Hobbes is the... Uh, is regrettably correct in saying that there is no way to separate uh, human life and violence. And the best we can hope for is a respite from this violence in the form of uh, civilization. But even then, this is a fragile and, e fragile and evanescent achievement. The danger of violence breaking out small-scale or large-scale is always there. So, let's say for the sake of discussion <clears throat> that the Federalists, all right, plus Jefferson and Franklin and Washington and Hamilton and the whole rest of the crew are deeply Lockean, and I think in a more attenuated sense, but, but uh, still discernible, um, they're Calvinists, not theologically, but in their skepticism about human nature. So they're trying to create a Lockean government based upon the consent of the governed. That's what the U.S. Constitution is. It is literally a social contract framed by representatives from all the prior states that is sent back in a plebiscite, not to the states, but to the people who, for the first time in real human history, as opposed to political theory, are now going to commonly agree to an, a written social contract. So it's a great Lockean achievement. And it's followed up by an even greater Lockean achievement the high point of the American Enlightenment is what's called the Revolution of 1800. That's where the Federalists, John Adams, was voted out of office in favor of Thomas Jefferson, a Democratic Republican. This is a critical juncture that tested the capacity of the new government to sustain a peaceful transfer of power between groups of politically engaged individuals with extremely different conceptions of the government and its, and its proper capacities. In 1800, instead of having a revolution, the Electoral College was tied, Alexander Hamilton steps up, throws his weight in the, in the direction of Jefferson, and what we get, despite the misgivings of President Am, uh, Adams, is a peaceful transfer of power. This is arguably 
one of the greatest and certainly the most underrated achievement of the Enlightenment. We didn't have to have a guillotine in every public square. We didn't have to persecute and exterminate our neighbors who, viewed, who voted differently. This is uh, one of the highest achievements both of the Enlightenment of, and of the history of the United States. Now, the problem is this. There's a, there's a fly in the ointment. Hidden behind this great constitution is a false unity. And the separation is on the basis of whether the economy of the relevant states is modern in the sense that it's primarily organized around individual private property and individual farming and individual production as opposed to slavery, which is um, a surprisingly inefficient way of producing things. Uh, it would, you, you wouldn't think that would be the case, but uh, there are lots of reasons why, why that turns out to be, the, to be true. Um, the slave states were always in danger of being swallowed up by the free states. The free states grew faster and attracted far more immigration. And the result of that was um, that the position of the slaveholding states was dwindling and was only going to get worse. It's um, a dangerous calculated risk that they took in 1860. Now the problem here is this. The South was making a claim that the United States was a Lockean agreement between equals, which at all times had an implicit right of separation. Now, that's almost certainly not true. Imagine if the founders uh, tried to... Uh, putting the Constitution together, imagine if Ohio had decided to secede. Would the founders have accepted, and did they have in mind, uh, a United States shaped like a donut? This is not at all likely. But regardless of whether this was a Lockean agreement that was reversible, in 1803, Thomas Jefferson, the great avatar of the strict construction of the Constitution, got a chance from a megalomaniacal French general to buy the middle part of the North American continent. Roughly everything from the Appalachians to the Rockies. The price was uniquely low, and this was a one-time offer. This was a once, not in a lifetime, this is a once in all of human history. Great, uh, real estate deal. Naturally, Jefferson bought it, despite his constitutional qualms. I mean, there's nothing in the Constitution that says that you, you can buy most of North America. But on the other hand, it was a great idea. But here's the fly in the ointment. Once you start bringing in states into this big chunk of real estate that you bought, Whatever the relationship between, say, Louisiana and the federal government is, 
it's not that of a Lockean agreement on which they voted, is it? They're part of the United States, not because they decided, yeah, we'd accept the social contract. They're part of the United States because the United States purchased them. Now, bracketing the question of whether the original states might have had a right to uh, secede, what conceivable right could real estate that the U.S. bought have to secede? The answer is none. And uh, that's where the Lockean argument begins to break down because it's been enc- it's encountered practical reality. 1860 to 1865, we find out whether the United States is really Hobbesian or really Lockean. The North winds, they impose federal control over the South. Slavery is ended, and this is through force of arms. So much for Locke. Uh, in general, I think that Locke, or, or rather, think of Hobbes this way. When you go to a, a court and you're sworn in, they ask you to tell, they expect you to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. Hobbes tells us the truth, and the truth is that there is no society without violence. The best you can hope for is to minimize that violence. But, although that's the truth, it's not the whole truth. The whole truth is going to involve something that's implicit in Locke, which is that not only are people hostile to one another in Hobbes' war of all against all, they also are generous and benevolent and nurturing towards one another. If the world really, if human beings really were in a constant state of war of all against all, mothers would kill their infants and there wouldn't be any people. But no, for the most part, mothers are not disposed to kill their infants. For the most part, they treat them with kindness and tenderness and sacrifice. So what Hobbes is giving us is only part of the truth about human nature. We are social as well as antisocial creatures. We are peaceable and kindly, as well as violent and hostile creatures. Uh, so, in that sense, <clears throat> both Hobbes and Locke are right. Hobbes is what uh, Rawls might call lexically first. you got to have the force, but force by itself is unsustainable, and that's why we need justice and love. Uh, in Locke's case, it takes the form of natural law, which has a long and uh, estimable history, right? It goes back to Thomas Aquinas and from there back to Stoic moral thought.